Live from the Hollywood Improv, it's the Nighttime Show! I'm Mike Black, the voice of the Nighttime Show. With us, as always, our head writer, Matt Walker. Today, our very special guest for the holidays, star of Bad Candy, Waxwork, and the Gremlin series, Zach Gallagher! And now, your host, you can feed him after midnight if you can find the room, Stephen Kramer Glickman! <laughs> Well done, Mike Black. Zach Galligan, sir, this is a uh, a true, a true, true honor and a true pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Uh, we were we were literally all talking before uh, you popped on about just uh, just like uh, how so many like we all watched Gremlins in the theater. I saw it in yeah. in eighty four mm-hmm. when I was five years old in the in the theater and absolutely was completely terrified by the uh, woman flying out the window. I thought that was, <laughs> I was, it scared the shit out well, of me. Uh, I remember it was one of the first PG-13 movies, and I remember wondering if I was going to be able to get in because I was only nine. And it was like a whole thing where it was like, oh, can I ooh. see this movie? Am I going to get to go in or not? And then they were like, yeah, we don't care. Literally. <laughs> Also, I'm going to interrupt you there because your memory is a little off. Okay. It is the movie that created the PG-13 rating. Oh, wow. Okay. Really? That's yes. Cool. What happened was, well, actually, it takes partial credit. It takes a 50% credit. Basically, what happened is you had two Spielberg movies in this uh, summer of 1984, mm-hmm. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Mm-hmm. Um, with the ripping the heart out of the beating, the beating heart out <laughs> yes. of the film. And then you had Gremlins the next week or two weeks later with the Gremlin in the microwave scene. Yes. Yeah. And between those two films, you had mothers calling up the MPAA <laughs> and screaming, going, this is outrageous. <laughs> and they were just absolutely freaking out. And so Jack Valenti, who was the at the time the head of the uh, Motion Picture Association of America, really was inundated by all of this negative feedback. And really felt like they had to do something and take take some kind of action. And so um, they created the PG-13 rating. And I believe the first PG-13 movie actually was Red Dawn. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. That so makes sense. Sense. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So there's some fun. <laughs> yes, they made a new rating for oh, it, which wow. is cool. That's really, yeah. that's really great. Um, are you uh, are you based here in Los Angeles, or where where are you at? I live about forty uh, miles outside of Atlanta, Georgia, in the middle of nowhere, Georgia, and it's fabulous. Wow! <laughs> wow. Real? How? What's it? When did you uh, when did you move out there? I moved. Uh, well, first of all, I'm a native New Yorker, so I was actually born and raised in Manhattan. From the time of my birth until I was about 24 years old when I moved out to Los Angeles. All right, give us streets. Give us street corners. Where where were you at? <laughs> uh, I was born on 84th and Riverside Drive, and then I moved around the corner for the the majority of it on 86th Street between uh, West End and Riverside. Oh, yeah. I lived on, uh, uh, what's it called, uh, the 85th Street between Broadway and Amsterdam for many, many years. I, that was, that was during the seventies when I grew up. That was kind of a dangerous block, so I would avoid it. <laughs> I'm a I'm a dangerous man, so that probably makes sense. Uh, not really. Um, that's yeah. That must that must have been a cool place to grow up. Well, 
it, it certainly was educational and informative. I mean, I would <laughs> say by the time I was 10 or 12, I could pretty much pick out every single sketchy individual that I ran into. And so you're, you're kind of, um, I guess you could say your stranger danger meter was really highly evolved because I grew up, remember I grew up in Manhattan during the seventies. And if you want to see what anyone who's listening wants to see what the seventies is like in Manhattan, just watch taxi driver because it captures it. (laughs) And it really, when, when you hear De Niro say the city's like an open sewer, I hope some rain one day will come and just wash everything away. That's pretty much, um, how it was and when i started being an actor in um the spring of 1981 i'm gonna hit my 40th anniversary of being an actor on this march Mm -hmm. which is hard to believe congratulations um, that's awesome thank you and uh you know i would go to a lot of auditions on 42nd street there and so it was the what they called the 40 deuce back then and (laughs) it was literally between 7th and 8th Avenue, 42nd Street, it was grindhouse cinemas, porno theaters, and uh, drug dealers and, and prostitutes. And so you would walk down the street, and it was legit dangerous, Yeah, you know? And so, like, I, I would be, like, going over my lines. People would be coming up to me going, yo, man, blow smoke. You want smoke? You want smoke? Blow, blow. <laughs> and I'd be like, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm like, I stop and I look and I'm like, you know, playing in the theater above me is like, uh, you know, Dawn of the Dead and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) Right. You know, like the grind or total grindhouse movies and Bruce Lee fists of fury on a triple feature for (laughs) $1.50. So, yeah, that's what I I grew up in that crazy late 70s or early 80s of Manhattan. And it was it was. it was not to be trifled with. Mm-hmm. Just going off your casting type, knowing that pimps and hookers were like, maybe this guy. <laughs> <laughs> that is, is so bizarre to me that, any, that anyone looked at you and was like, this is the guy for us. Just pitch to him, you know. It, I, I guess, you know, I always, even it's even though I wasn't really particularly innocent, because like I said, I was kind of, kind of had developed some street smarts. Yeah. I had a very innocent look about me. I had a very kind of open, you know, face, kind of a <laughs> yeah. baby face. And uh, if you saw, like, uh, I actually just had an amazing thing happen to me yesterday with my very, very first IMDb credit, which I know you guys actually would like to quiz people about. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's actually, here's the thing. It's not on IMDb. It's so obscure that it's not even listed on IMDb, even though it has two pretty well-known actors in it, um, Dixie Carter and William Russ, mm-hmm. William okay. Rusty Wall. Wow. Um, what? And it's a half-hour uh, educational special that I did for an up-and, at the time, an up-and-coming HBO competitor called Showtime. Uh-huh. And yeah. um, they, they were trying to do some, they were trying to do um, sort of com- competition for ABC America, uh, ABC After School Specials. Yeah. So I did um, this thing called Someone's in the Kitchen with Jamie. And it was about the virtues of home economics class. And uh, Dixie Carter plays this uh-huh. the lead kid, Jamie's mom, who's played by a guy named Don Kerr, who's a Broadway actor. And I'll play uh, uh, Jamie's best friend, Eddie, 
who thinks that uh, home ec is for sissies. <laughs> and, and, and are you ready for this? I swear to God, I'm not making this up. I haven't seen it in 39 years, and someone sent me a link because it got uploaded onto YouTube yesterday. <gasps> oh, my no, God. No, that's amazing. I just watched it for the first time since I shot it when I was 17. I was in 11th grade and I shot it. <laughs> oh what was that like God, watching that? That's so strange. That's amazing. What was I going through your friend, head when you saw that again? I, I told my friend afterwards, she was like, how do you feel? And I was like, I feel unusual. <laughs> <laughs> like, it just was very, very strange. First of all, I was maybe 130, 135 pounds. I'm so thin. Uh-huh. It's ridiculous. And I have 1981, like an attempt at a Jim Morrison hairstyle. Uh-huh. It goes dangerously wrong. And it basically, I have like a, like a gym fro. I have a, just a huge, puffy, poofy hairstyle it's like a hair helmet it's gigantic oh that's awesome it's so great it's just amazing and um i have a little i have a much smaller version of that in gremlins this one is like double the size (laughs) it's like like kirk cameron cubed oh wow (laughs) that sounds awesome kirk cameron cubed is my that should be the title of this episode (laughs) kirk cameron cubed everyone is racing to youtube right now to see this That's yeah. fantastic. So wh- how did you get into acting to wind up being cast in that role in the first place? Well, you know, um, one of the things that's interesting about uh, being an actor is that obviously you always and you and, and having a little bit of success is that people come up to you all the time and they say, I really want to get into it. How do I get into acting? How do I break into it? I mean, I probably heard that question mm-hmm. a, that literally a thousand times. And Really, the key thing for me and the reason why I broke through was because I was in a major city that had, you know, an acting industry. So if you're not in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, um, Austin, Atlanta, if you're not in a big city like that, your odds of making it are very, very slim unless you know, unless you have connections. Yeah. The fact of the matter is what happened to me was uh, I, I essentially got discovered. I was uh, going to a, a very kind of, you know, jacket and tie, all boys school, 77th and Broadway called Collegiate. Mm-hmm. Um, among my fellow classmates, although all of them were jocks at the time, none of them acted at all. But among my classmates were David Duchovny and uh, Jason Begay and Billy Worth. And wow. um, yeah, so we had all of these like kind wow. of Amazing. up and coming actors and they were all none of them were in school plays i was the only one who did every school play i was pippin and pippin i was i was um i'm trying to think of what else i did there's oh danny zuko in greece you know the big the big the 70s big three of plays that you (laughs) right yeah oh yeah yeah so i was doing i quit i was doing sports i was doing soccer and basketball and baseball and i quit all of that in 11th grade and decided i was going to focus on doing plays specifically musicals because i was one of the few kids that could i couldn't really sing great but i could i could carry a tune and and not be flat and um get it not be flat (laughs) (laughs) unintentional joke there um 
And so I would do these musicals and uh, unbeknownst to me, casting directors uh, would come around and uh, they were looking for sort of, you know, preppy upper middle class kids to play the children of actors in movies. Mm -hmm. So casting directors would literally come and scout our plays. So the very first audition I ever had, um, this casting director named Shirley Rich was casting a movie uh, that eventually got made with George C. Scott and Timothy Hutton called Taps. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Of course. It was a military academy movie. And I went up for the role of North in the summer of 1980. And I got a callback. And when I got a callback, I'd actually, two weeks earlier, I'd auditioned in Manhattan. And at that point, when I got the callback, I was actually a pot washer at a summer camp up in Woodstock, New York. <laughs> oh, my God, man. I had to get on a bus. I had to ask for time off and get on a bus and go into the city for the day from mm-hmm. Woodstock to actually, it was actually Kingston, New York. So we don't 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 want to slight people from Kingston who listen to this. <laughs> right, movie. right. And um, I, I went in and read for the director Harold Becker, uh, who was a great director who directed um, the Onion Field with James Woods. Yeah. Okay. Which is John Savage, which is a fabulous late seventies movie. Um, and so I went in there and I read for uh, the part of. Uh, actually, you know what? I'm wrong. It wasn't the part of North. I, I had a long, I had a line there. Uh, I still remember it 40 years later where I had to look at one of the military student academy students and go, what's the matter, North? Guts gone south? You know, I really, I really, at 16, I really liked the way that I did the, the you know, kind of differentiated between yeah. the North and the school thing for the, for the joke. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I didn't get the part. I, I, I did pretty well. And I, After I think I got that reading, you didn't get the part? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I got beaten out by this up-and-coming, unknown young guy named Sean Penn. Oh, <laughs> God. Damn you. Sh- damn it, Penn. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> and, um, and of course, Tom Cruise was in that uh, that movie, too. And as we talk about my story, he'll, he'll come up again and yeah. again repeatedly because we <laughs> my um, auditioned against each other a lot uh, in New York in the early days, specifically for uh, risky business. Mm-hmm. Wow! Wow! So that movie, so, yeah, so that so, movie gets made so, without so you. I, but the question. So that yeah, movie gets yeah. made without you, but that sort of broke you into where people knew who you were, and then you were able to get more auditions after that. Well, a- after that, you know, casting directors talk to each other. So Shirley Rich talked to another casting director. Who really, and this woman is really a New York legend. Her name is Julia Taylor. And she cast all of Woody Allen's movies and The Great Gatsby and Kramer versus Kramer and just about every great wow. 70s, 80s movie that you could think of. Oh my God. And she came in and um, saw me do a sketch in a comedy thing. I did a, and I was, at the time, I was really into British humor, even though I was 15 years old. And I was doing something. Um, a sketch from a show called Beyond the Fringe, which was a big 60s British comedy thing with uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. And so I was doing a, a Peter Cook sketch about a lecherous priest. And uh, I guess she saw it. She thought I was good. She asked my drama teacher for an introduction. So I, I can still close my eyes and see her walking up to me in the lunchroom of collegiate. And she sat there and said, do you want to try out for this movie? And I said, sure. So uh, the movie actually 
was called No Small Affair. And I tried out for it and um, didn't get it again. But she she took a pic, a Polaroid of me and she put it on a piece of cardboard that you would like put on the back of like shirts that came from the cleaners. <laughs> sure. <laughs> And um, she put all of my stats on it and stuff like that. And then the movie went on and got made. Are you ready for this? With Matthew Broderick, who was unknown at the time, and <laughs> Sally Field. Oh, my God. And w- wait for this. And the director, Martin Ritt, three weeks into the production, had a heart attack. So the movie got shut down and the property got stopped. And they made it four years later with Demi Moore and John Cryer. Wow. Oh, my God. It's just so, like, um, it's, you know, it. it What's so fascinating uh, about you, you know, is that like uh, you, you're you're just curving around corners of these massive, massive films where like you could have ended up in this one, you could have ended up in that one, and and you know, watching these roles end up going to these uh, to these other young guys who uh, you know some of them you know blew up or had you know big successes or this or that, and then. And then you end up in uh, in this film that is a perfect yeah, Gremlins. I believe is a perfect film because yeah. Yeah. you have Joe Dante, who's a fucking genius. You have Chris Columbus, you know, who's in one of the most incredible writers in the world. You have Spielberg. You've all, all these amazing people, and then. And then that's then it's you. You're the main guy. And and this is a movie I have gone to see in the theater with Mike Black here. Yeah. Twice yeah. in the last few years. Before COVID, they would show it at uh at like, you know, different, you know, theaters. I think we went went and saw it in the Cinerama Dome and we the, saw the, it at the Chinese also. And we saw it at the Chinese in the in the giant theater at the Chinese. It was like, you know, it's you know, uh, all these other films, taps and this and that. It's like these these are great films, but people aren't want, people aren't going to, to see them. They're like that's not, <laughs> not they're now. not yeah. being rescreened. Yeah, you know, fifty, you know, twenty, uh, thirty years later. Like I'm, I've bad at time. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> fifty years, fifty later years. Yes. Yeah, I know, but you know what I'm saying. It's an amazing thing. Hey, uh, real quick before we continue the show, um, I want to talk about a third generation family run business that I am very proud to be working with. Uh, Sennheiser is the number one, number top tier (laughs) microphone uh, company in the world. And we are so lucky that we are now recording our show using Sennheiser microphones and their headphones. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. We're, we're talking into Sennheiser MD42 microphones and using Sennheiser HD25 headphones, and these sound amazing. I mean, listen to Mike Black's voice. Listen to the rich and sumptuous soundscape that comes out of my voice oh. every time I speak into a Sennheiser. Absolutely. Go check out uh, their microphones and their sound equipment over at Sennheiser.com. All right, let's get back to the show. How did you end up, uh, you know, getting uh, getting cast in that? How did how did this process happen? Uh, how did I end up getting cast in Gremlins? Yeah, yeah. There is a casting director in New York. Um, her name uh, is Susan Arnold, and I had uh, just done a, uh, a movie that never got an official release, which is very strange considering the people involved. It was an MGM movie called Nothing Lasts Forever. And it was produced by Lauren Michaels, Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. and directed by Tom Schiller, who did these black and white films for early SNL called Schiller's Reel. Mm-hmm. 
and it had uh, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Imogene Coca, Mort Saul, Sam Jaffe, wow. uh, Lauren Tom from Futurama, like all these incredible actors. Wow. Um, and obviously, and, and it was supposed to have John Belushi too, but he died almost exactly a month before shooting in 1982. Oh, so I was... Um, as Leah Thompson would say on on her podcast or on her podcast she did with you, I was the, I was the hot guy at the time. Mm-hmm. So I, when you're the hot guy at the time, you'll get seen for anything. Like yeah. even if you're completely wrong for it, they'll be like, "Let's bring him in. He's hot," you know. Yeah. So they brought so Susan Arnold was like uh, that week was a crazy week for me because I was going up for the Hotel New Hampshire, um, which was a movie with Jodie Foster and Nastasia Kinski that was super hot mm-hmm. at the time. And also going up for something else. I can't remember. And um, I mean, you're talking 37 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and Gremlins. So Susan Arnold called me in um, and we were not allowed to see any of the script except for the audition scene, which was the scene where I asked um, the Phoebe Cates character out on a date. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is totally and, nothing like the rest of the movie at all, which is funny. Right. Yeah. It, it was absolutely. In fact, I, if it's, when I first got it, I thought maybe it wasn't in the movie. I thought maybe it was sort of a generic scene that they gave us mm-hmm. to hide more details of the movie. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah or it, it could be so like, or like, oh, this is a rom-com called Gremlins. Interesting. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was like, well, we, we were looking for, I thought maybe like we're looking for a certain thing in the character. So we'll just give a rom-com scene and mm-hmm. we'll see whether it's good enough for the stuff that we're hiding. Yeah everybody because because we don't want it to leak out right and even back in the early 80s um you know what was the the thing that most people are stunned about with gremlins is that uh, and i'm skipping to the end but i'll go back to the Mm -hmm. process when i got the part i had to agree to do the movie without having read the script wow i literally signed on to the movie having no idea what i was going to do um (laughs) Like at all now is that because because I mean even though you were sort of like the hot guy at the time like you hadn't really landed the big role yet like you were always very close did they have that power because you hadn't landed one of those big roles yet and they're like we know we can make this guy do whatever we want or was that just sort of like hey that's just what they were going with for everybody like Phoebe Cates she didn't know anybody didn't know I would say the first one because they certainly had the power to make me sign away every single bit of merchandising <laughs> revenue that we could have oh yeah. um, I mean like people always go, dude, you probably made a fortune on all that merchandise. I was like, I no. literally didn't make a yeah. penny. Like, literally oh, man. which was kind of um brutal when the the merchandise came out in nineteen eighty four and by the end of the nineteen eighty four business year it had gr- it had made a billion dollars in nineteen eighty four. Oh god. Yeah. Mm. Well, it was it, at the time, you know, I was 20, not really thinking about money. I was thinking about the fact that I was on Hardy's records and put with <laughs> posters on girls' walls yeah. and on yeah. mugs and lunch boxes and bubblegum cards. And, and stuff did, like you, that. did you get one of like everything that you were in? Like, do you have like a giant gremlins collection of all your little action figures and stuff? You know, it's really weird. People come to my house and they expect it to be some gremlins shroom, and I literally have. <laughs> A filmed poster of the movie, uh-huh. and that's it. Wow! Wow! Really? I, I would have everything. Like we went to Walter Koenig's house to do an interview with him. He has every Chekhov doll ever produced. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> and I'm like, that's exactly what I would do. I would have every single toy ever made of me. Yeah. Well, I do have the the um, Nika. I think it's Nika put it out, which is a great toy manufacturer. Does a lot of good Gremlins. Oh, stuff. Nika. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Those guys Neca. are great. Yeah, Nika is amazing, and um. 
they put out a Billy Pelzer figure, or as I like to call it, a Zaction figure. Um, <laughs> nice. and, and so I got one of those, and I have the actually I do have one of those on on my desk, my little action figure of myself, because that's go. just too yeah. neat. God, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. 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 Yeah, yeah that's awesome. That's so yeah. great. Um, getting do you want to get me to fit, wrap up? Yeah, the, yeah, no. I want to hear that. Happen. Wait, yeah. uh, I want to ask one real super nerdy question. <laughs> yeah, get nerdy, Matt. <laughs> what get accessories does your action figure come with? It comes with it. Actually, they Nick did an amazing job. I have the scratches are on my chest on my sweater. Mm-hmm. Um, my hand has the cut with the gauze bandages around my the front of my the back of my hand. And it comes with a um, correctly green-colored North Face backpack and a baby gizmo. Oh, that's oh, yeah. cool. That's awesome that it comes with gizmo. <laughs> Mike's, yeah, Mike's awesome. jumping on eBay right now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you got That is not that. untrue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what so, a, so basically, yeah. you want me to finish the audition? Yes, please. Oh, please. Yes. oh my yes. God, of course. So I, I came in and I read for Susan Arnold. She was like, great, can you come back and meet the director and producer? I said, sure. Two days later, I came back and um, Mike Fennell, the producer, the actual producer, Steven Spielberg was the executive producer and oversaw a ton of things having to do with the movie, including the final say for casting. So mm-hmm. it was Steven and myself. Wow. And um, so Mike Fennell came in and Joe was not there. And it, it, it turned out that Joe is a, uh, this is some interesting Joe Dante trivia. Uh, J- Joe does not drive to this day, does not know how to drive a car. <laughs> oh my but God. Really well. And it was a, uh, at the time was not used to or adjusted to flying. So he was very kind of plain sick, even the next day. Yeah. So um, I auditioned just for Mike. So the very first time that I met, uh, Joe was the final callback, which is what they called at the time mix and match se- sessions, mm-hmm. where they pair you with different women um, to kind of see, you know, uh, yeah. determine what kind of chemistry you have with them. Of course. Yeah. So I went to the mix and match, match se- session, and I knew that I was going to meet Joe, and they were going to put me on video. Now, putting me on video at the time back then was they had you stand from the big white screen and the camera was this monstrosity. It was so huge. And they taped it into this enormous VCR thing that spat out this huge VHS tape, uh-huh. which you then put into an American express envelope, uh, excuse me, a federal express yeah. uh, envelope and <laughs> fed it to LA and they watched it like a day later. <laughs> it was the technology. Remember there's no computers, there's no yeah. internet, there's no nothing. Um, Every time that we got a script, I had to go and pick up a script. It wasn't emailed to me. I had to like get in cars and drive and go get it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, it was decades I had to do that. So All actors did. So I get to the thing, and um, you, you have to understand, they're still not giving us anything else. So it's the same scene. So I know mm-hmm. the lines backwards and forwards. I've already done that at two other auditions. So I walk in. To the room. It was in Midtown. I can't remember where. It's in the fifties in Manhattan. And I walk in, and the first person that I see is Phoebe Cates. Now I had met Phoebe before because we had both auditioned together 
for a Paul Mazursky movie with John Cassavetes and Jenna Rollins called Tempest, uh, based on the Shakespeare play. Mm-hmm. And actually, you can see this movie, even though it's not wasn't very well received. It's really quite good. Also, in it is a uh, young actress making her film debut by the name of Molly Ringwald. <laughs> So just to kind of show you of everyone who's sort of bubbling up and, and getting yeah. hot. Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah. So uh, I had read with Phoebe and I had a massive, massive uncontrollable crush on her. I thought she was just about the most attractive person I'd ever met in person. And I could everyone, see knew her. <laughs> yeah. everyone knew her in Manhattan. She w- was going to uh, a school called Hewitt, which was aligned with collegiate and Dalton and, and Brearley and Nightingale and all of these kind of prep schools were sort of linked as one big mass in Manhattan. And she had been on the cover of 17 magazine, which was like the absolute ultimate in the early eighties. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And um, so she was kind of like, uh, you know, in 11th grade, 12th grade circles, she was very, very well known as like the most successful kind of model girl that there was in Manhattan. Right. So I walked in and she, I can, I can actually close my eyes and tell you what she was wearing it's so vivid these some of these movies are so burned in my brain it's crazy she's wearing um this new brand of sneakers i'd never heard of before called reeboks and she had uh she had sort of slightly acid washed jeans that had zippers right by where your ankles are Mm -hmm. like they had little small zippers oh yeah i remember those Yeah. yeah And she had a baseball shirt on, like it was a kind of like a, a white one with orange sleeves, mm-hmm. the red, red orange sleeves, baseball kind of shirt. And she had almost no makeup, or if she put it on, it was imperceptible. And she had her hair back in a ponytail, and she looked fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> and I walked in, she goes, hey. And I go, hey. First of all, I was stunned she remembered me, and then I was thrilled, and then my heart started racing about a trillion beats a minute. <laughs> and she goes, hey, are you reading for this? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, you want to re- read with me? You know, just to like get up to speed? I was like, sure. So I s- s- uh, kind of, you know, scooted up next to her. Mm-hmm. And we started running the lines. We got through it once. And then we got through it about another half of the time. And Susan Arnold peeked her head out of the door, which was closed. And she just peeked it out. She saw both of us and she went, Zach, Phoebe, are you ready? And we looked at each other like, whoa, we, were, we had been so busy running lines. I hadn't even signed in, you know, because you, usually you come yeah. in. The first thing you do, there's a sign in sheet and you sit down, you take your material and you practice and then they call you in. Mm-hmm. And so she and I went in and this is this. The reason why I'm telling this in such a long, detailed way is it's going to have some major relevance. Oh, uh, it, it's the best story. I, I'm so <laughs> you have no idea how happy I am that you're telling the story. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just Zach. We have people come on this show sometimes where you go, uh, "How did you end up uh, getting cast in uh, one of the greatest movies of all time?" And they go, "Ah, god damn it, I don't know." <laughs> you just sit there going, "Oh man, come on!" Like you want the you want the juice. You want to you want to hear it. And this is fantastic. Please, yeah. please, please, please continue. So I walk in with Phoebe. Phoebe is unbelievably smooth in terms of the way she handles you know people and i'm like a stumbling bumbling i'm like inspector clouseau you know Mm -hmm. tripping over the furniture and everything like that (laughs) and so joe dante has this great kind of slightly squeaky voice he's like 
He's like, so how are you guys doing? Great. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand uh, shoulder to shoulder next to that white screen there, and we'll do the scene. And I want you guys just to sort of mimic like you're walking down the road and having a conversation. And I want it to be real nice and natural. And I don't want you to push or anything like that. Just, you know, see if you can enjoy being with each other. Can you do that? And I was like, yeah, sure. Of course. <laughs> um, so we started the scene and we did it. And it's, you know, the scene where she's like, you know, uh, uh, she hates Christmas and she won't tell me why. And it's yeah. kind of mysterious. And I'm like, you know, and I, I have the incredibly uh, sensitive line where I go, what are you, a Hindu or something? <laughs> oh <my> God, amazing. <laughs> amazing. And probably not the best possible line nowadays. But anyway, um, and so we get to it, to the end. And I was actually, I always tried to do one thing in the early auditions. I, I still try and do it is. I always try and make one line have some kind of something special or interesting about it that I think nobody else is going to do except me. Mm. And um, so what I decided was that when I asked her for a date, I was going to expect her to automatically go, yeah, I can't, there's no way. Mm -hmm. And so when she says, yeah, I'd love to. And I hoped that she would say it really quickly so that it would throw me off. So I could then, start being disappointed and then kind of hear what she said and go, wait, what, really? Whoa, uh, whoa that's mm -hmm. amazing. So I did that and I thought it went pretty well and I was really happy with it. And, um, you know, uh, basically the scene ended or so I thought. And so I said the last line, she and I said the last line and or whatever, whoever said the last line and we looked at each other kind of, you know, we had to sort of do a profile look cause we're shoulder to shoulder. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm waiting for Joe Dante to call cut and he doesn't call cut. Well, mm. for those of you non-actors listening to the podcast, you, if the director doesn't call cut, you could, you know, until he calls cut, you go on for another 30 yeah. seconds, five minutes, 10 minutes. You just keep improving, making stuff, stay in the character, stay in the scene. until the director says cut. Right. Well, I'm an inexperienced actor. I've barely been acting two years. I don't, this is a high pressure situation. I have no idea what to do. <laughs> just none. Mm. And just left with like nothing to do. <laughs> so uh, very awkwardly, I looked at Phoebe and she's giggling. I'm giggling. And I looked over sort of off to Joe, who's standing right next to the camera. And I was just baffled at what to do. So I looked into the camera and put my head on Phoebe's shoulder <laughs> and sighed and went like, ah, you know, like, isn't she dreaming? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like, do a funny kind of like button on the scene just to make it kind of interesting and fun and they and and so obviously joe Dante saw that i didn't know what to do so he said cut mm -hmm. <laughs> so afterwards and this is the whole reason i told you this long story afterwards when i got the part i'm on the set of joe dante and obviously i'm an up-and-coming actor and i want to learn not only from my failures but from my successes so i said to joe can you tell me something what did i do in order to get this part, because I want to repeat it and get more parts and do this, do these positive things again. Yeah. And he goes, actually, he said, this is what happened. We took the tape and we sent it to Spielberg. And then we flew back the next day and we sat down to watch the tapes together. And then your and Phoebe's uh, audition came up. And at the end, he goes, I don't know if you remember this. He goes, at the end of the tape, you put your head on Phoebe's shoulder and you sighed and you looked at the camera. And Spielberg saw that and he went, oh, my God, look, he's already in love with her. I don't need to see anything else. And he got up and, and walked out of the room. 
and that's when we broke apart. Wow. Oh that's my awesome. God. That's yeah. amazing. That is so fantastic. That was so great. And it really does read in the film, uh, you know, how much you like her. It, it, it really comes across very beautifully, I think, you know. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. it kind of holds, holds your characters together, the through line through the whole movie, you know. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why Spielberg, I think, is so good at directing kids and young, especially young kids and younger actors so well is that he looks for some of the dynamics that are in the script to already be there in the actors. So the actors don't really have to act as much as just sort of relax and be themselves. Yeah. And so that way the actors relax and be themselves and he creates an atmosphere that's relaxing where the actors can have fun then the natural dynamics between the actors like my crush on her comes out and you don't need to perform it. It's just there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, a quick thing I want to talk about, uh, Mike Black. I, I think this is uh, something that we, we really should talk about. Yeah. And uh, it's a, um, a company yes. that was founded in 1983 in Tokyo, Japan, of course, I'm talking about the Zoom Corporation. Zoom. Now, if if it wasn't for Zoom, and Matt knows this, we would not be able to do our show. Um, they make the best audio equipment in the world. Um, we w- which one are we using right now? We, we're recording onto a Zoom Live Track L8 right now, and when we go do our live events at conventions and stuff, we often use the Zoom H6, and they're both just fantastic pieces of equipment. You plug your microphones in, you plug your headphones in, and you're good to go. Yeah, I mean, whether you're a classically trained pianist or a run and gun filmmaker or a podcaster like uh, you know like us um yep yeah i do a ton of podcasts and i can tell by listening when they're using a zoom and when they're not yeah it's the uh, mark of excellence it yeah. really is uh go check it uh, go check out all their stuff over at zoom-na.com that's zoom-na.com be professional for god's sake zoom-na.com all right okay let's get back to the show so then uh, you get on set, you start making this movie, and there's obviously a lot of uh, little creatures running around in the film. So how many of those are like puppets you're interacting with in person? I mean, how much of that stuff was done afterwards, um, just sort of like green screen stuff? Like how did that come together? Well, you know, it was interesting because, again, I'm going to reference um, something that Leah uh, Thompson said in your podcast mm-hmm. because they would make movies without knowing how they were going to make them. Yeah. <laughs> they just didn't really, they were like, oh, we'll figure it out on the set. Mm-hmm. And Chris Wallace, who is the guy who designed Gizmo and all of the Grillmans for the first movie. In the second movie, um, Rick Baker took over okay. because Chris Wallace had such an unbelievably anxious and horrific time. <laughs> on Gremlins, so he almost had a nervous breakdown uh, at the end of the movie. Yeah. Really? Yes, because th- what happened was he started having success um, accomplishing things. You know, like, oh, well, Disney looks good. So then people would go, hey, can he skateboard? And then Chris would be like, oh, well, you know, you have to understand, too, Chris was 28 years old at the time when he was yeah. working on this movie. He was a kid, basically a kid. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. A young man. And so, and this is his first big thing. He's working for Spielberg. So every time someone said, "Hey, can you get a gremlin to break dance?" He'd be like, "Yeah, of course." <laughs> and so, it was kind of like you have to imagine this metaphor. Imagine 
you have a giant stack of papers on your desk and it takes you hours to do all of them. And the second you're done with the, all the work and you go, I can finally roll, somebody comes in with a, a stack three times larger. Yeah. And now imagine that process happening day after day after day for two years yeah. without a day off. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. It reminds Holy me of, uh, like, we interviewed Brian Henson on the show um, and he talked about like when they were making like the Muppet movie and they had to have Kermit ride a bike and we were like, well, how did Kermit ride a bike? And he's like, we made Kermit ride a bike. He's like, that, there's like, there's no effect. We yeah. just figured out how to have a puppet ride a bike and we did it. And that sort of seems like the kind of thing they would do where it's like, how do you make Gizmo breakdance? We just made him breakdance. I don't know. <laughs> well, apparently the thing that pushed Chris Wayless over the edge was, and most people don't know this, but, when we shot the first Gremlins, we did 17 weeks of humans and puppets. Wow. And, oh and, and basically, we were, we were done. Okay. The human part was done. And what most people don't know is on the day I left, which is August 4th, 1983, mm-hmm. it was the end of all human actors and, and, and sequences. And they shot nothing but effects shots until mid November. <laughs> Oh, my God. So we did all of August, September, October, Mm -hmm. and half of November. And the breaking point was like in September, Joe Dante said, put up a piece of paper on the wall. And he's like, anyone who comes up with some good ideas for what gremlins should do, some wacky stuff for what they should do, write them down. So people wrote down like 50 impossible things to do. And they, like ride it like Kermit riding a bike. Yeah. And they picked the top ten and told Chris to do it. This oh. is after two years of working. Oh, on that it. poor man. Basically, <sighs> they just set up ten more desks for him with ten more stacks of paper. Yeah. And he, he had a breakdown. Yeah. He, I, he got on the back. Of, he got on the back of a truck and he was driving with some you know puppet <laughs> from one stage to another and he fell off the truck and hurt his ankle. And even though it was kind of a minor thing, it was the straw that uh-huh. mentally broke his back, and he he freaked out. And wow. it, you know, to this day, the dude is like in his sixties. To this day, he he told me because I saw him at the thirtieth anniversary reunion we had. He tells me that, that he tells me that when people will say gremlins to him or ask him about the gremlins experience, he has minor PTSD. <laughs> Holy oh, shit. Man. Wow. Oh, my God. Like a Vietnam, like a Vietnam vet. He yeah. has PTSD about doing gremlins. And he would not do gremlins, too. He refused. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that seems... Oh, could you imagine? That movie would have destroyed him. Yeah. You know, as as hardcore as Gremlins was with practical effects and all that stuff. Mm. Gremlins 2, when you have, like, the fruit gremlin and the bat gremlin and oh stuff like that. God. That would have killed it. Did you ever see... Zach, did you ever see the, uh, the Key and Peele uh, uh, sketch about Gremlins 2? <laughs> Let me just tell you this. Anytime there's anything about Gremlins... I get sent 90 copies. <laughs> oh, my God, of <laughs> yeah. course. That's yeah. like the stupidest question ever. <laughs> yes, of course. No, of course. Yeah. You know what? I, I Something that I, that I love, too. I just I was just looking at, like, the producers on the on the film, and it's like, ooh, I, I knew Frank Marshall was involved. I knew that Steven Spielberg was an executive producer on it, but I, it, it blows my mind 
that Kathleen Kennedy was an executive producer on that movie because it just goes to like now everybody knows Kathleen Kennedy's name because of right. of the work that she's been been doing with Star Wars and with Disney and with everything. But yeah. it's an amazing thing to think that she was executive producing back like that far way, back. Way like way it back. just yeah. it's like it's it, it's mind blowing. It's so cool. Yeah, you have to understand one thing about uh, Kathy Kennedy is that she was married to Frank Marshall at the time. And Frank Marshall was a pretty powerful guy. And in fact, we name check him in Gremlins uh, 2, excuse me, uh, Gremlins 1, um, where Corey Feldman and I are up in the attic. And he goes, oh, oh, wow, Hooded Menace number one, where'd you get that? And I go, "Uh, I'm not sure. I think uh, Dr. Fantasies, and that's uh, Frank Marshall's nickname, Dr. Fantasy. Whoa, that's that's so cool. Oh, okay, you got to tell us about Corey Feldman, because I'll tell you what. That is, he is uh, a magical being that uh, uh, has graced this this world with his uh, uh, mu- well, mu- musical yeah, magic. There's yeah. a lot of magic happening <laughs> with Corey Feldman. You um, have to understand. You have to understand something about Corey. I've known Corey since the dude was eleven. Okay, <laughs> Gremlins was his film debut. Yeah. He was literally a seventh grader. Okay. And so I've known him for so long and I didn't really quite fully understand him until I read his book, which has possibly the greatest title of all time, Choreography. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. It's pretty good, right? Yeah. Um, And I'm not going to go into detail about it. You should have him on the show, but he he had um, some pretty terrible parents yeah and he's very very open about it and he's one of the you know one of these kids that sued for emancipation when he was 16 to get away from them and he should have but of course you know he then immediately got thrown to the wolves and and at 16 really had no idea what he was doing because he was 16 right it's sort of a a cautionary tale about what can happen to child stars in that you know, if they if they don't have a strong home life and a strong support system, this business will eat them up. Yeah, he had neither. He had yeah. he had no home life to speak of that was supportive in any way, and he had just a predatory group of people who were his support system. Yeah. So he yeah. was basically um, he was in big trouble. And when I saw him in like 1989, and he was just a mess. Uh, I knew there was really, I didn't really feel like there was anything I could do because, um, yeah. at that point he was, you know, 20 and when you're 20 years old, yeah. you, you just, you don't really listen to anybody. Right. I didn't. Yeah. When, and, when you're 20, you know, everything, right. Yeah. So you're not listening to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, that's true. And so I really, I just, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I, I prayed for him because I, I, I sensed that, that bad things were going to happen both to him and to Corey Haim, who I knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. And, and, and they did, you know, and they did. And it's just one of those, it's just one of those things. So I have a very, very soft spot in my heart for Corey and what he's been through. And, uh, yeah. you know, he gets, he gets a lot, he gets, uh, I mean, he, he's, he's the author of a lot of it. So, you know, he puts, him, he puts himself out there and he takes some huge risks. Yeah. I mean, um, you got to understand something. He, I, 
I was a presenter at something called the Saturn Awards, which for oh, yeah. people listening to podcasts that they don't know, mm. it's like cycling fantasy awards. Sure, yeah. yeah. When I was a presenter in 1991, I gave um, away Best Actor and Best Actress to uh, Best Actor to Anthony Hopkins, but it didn't show, which I was uh, disappointed about for Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> yeah. And then I gave Linda Hamilton Best Actress for Terminator 2. And sitting in the front row were Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton, and her husband, James Cameron. Wow. So, so cool. But the thing that was so, so crazy about it is that Corey was the host of the Saturn Awards. <laughs> Jesus. He hosted it. And he hosted it in full Michael Jackson regalia. Yeah. Oh, my and, yeah, God. That was a big thing time, for him yeah. for a while. Yeah. yeah. And, he, and he opened the show doing Smooth Criminal. Now, all I wanted to say was, and I said it to him, I said, Corey, you know, you do a great Michael Jackson, but we've already got a Michael yeah. Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was alive and doing and one of the yeah. biggest people in the planet. And I was like, dude, you, you should be Corey. You shouldn't be Michael Jackson, you know? Yeah. And he just needed a parental figure to model himself after so badly. And when Michael Jackson was really nice to him and kind to him, and according to Corey, absolutely nothing happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he said that multiple, multiple times and de defends Michael Jackson to this day rather vehemently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, he, basically, he just, Michael Jackson was one of the first people that ever really was generous to him and showed him love and kindness. And so he just, the same way that people model themselves after their dad, he modeled himself after Michael Jackson, and it's just it, it never it's never changed. Well, I mean, and, imagine modeling yourself after uh, after someone like Michael Jackson, and then Michael Jackson going, uh, "Hey, uh, you know what? Really complete this outfit, uh, my jacket from Thriller." You know, <laughs> yeah. like you're not going to say no to yeah, the jacket. Yeah. No, like it, it, it's like when you have that kind of encouragement from the guy, it's like everyone else can you know anyone else's opinion doesn't really fucking matter because. You're wearing the stuff from the guy who you, who made it famous. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like it's like he, it's like being a, a knight in someone's court. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's ex and that's exactly what happened. And I'm sure too, having someone around who didn't have ulterior motives, like you know, everyone, like you said, everyone was predatory that was in his support system. If you're hanging out with a billionaire, they don't really need anything from you. They're hanging out with you because they like you. you yeah. know? Right. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I can't vouch for other people, but Corey has always said nothing but amazing things about their relationship and how much fun he was and how hilarious he was and some of the good times they had. He was, you know, went to Neverland and everything like that. And apparently he had a ball. And mm -hmm. Did you I mean, ever get to go to, to Neverland? Have you ever been to – did you ever get to go? I, I never met Michael Jackson. Who's the of of everybody that you've met in your career? Who who are like let's let's say top three people that you've met that you're just like I can't believe I'm in the same room as this person. Where you just got you get you get tongue tied. Has there ever been anybody? Is there anyone you get tongue tied around? Like the way Steven is right now? Yeah, I'm because <laughs> he's posing <laughs> that question to I'm, you. I'm, I'm such a huge fan, Zach. I can't, I can't, uh, I can't even get the words out. Um, well, you know, I would say uh, a top three. Well, that's tough. Well, certainly um, I, I met Prince and that was pretty oh, yeah. crazy. But oh, he has, he had a very um, unmistakable, 
aura about him. Um, he's one of the few people where like he could enter the room and your back would be turned, but you'd feel like a presence, not a murmur from the crowd. Like it could just be you in the room with your back to him and he walk in the room. And even if you didn't hear his footsteps or something, you'd, you'd feel that like he had a, he had a very unusual presence, mm-hmm. um, like very unusual presence and an intensity. And uh, I didn't really say much to him, but I mean, you know, I, I basically said something to him. I don't even remember. It was it was actually at a club, um, the Roxbury, in like the movie, The Night at the Roxbury. And he had a private booth there, and I was had a couple of cocktails too many back in the day. And I was decided I was going to go up and say something to him about, uh, I think it was uh, about um, one of his records. Mm-hmm. And so I went up and I said something to him and stuff like that. And he was he was pretty standoffish, but he. At one point, I said something, and I can't I can't even remember what it was. And he just looked at me, really, he tilted his head, kind of like a dog tilts their head when they're looking at some physical. He tilted his head, and he looked at me, and he was just kind of like, he had this slight smile curl up on, like, the right side of his mouth. And and then I think he just shook his head and said, no. You know, he, he really didn't say much. <laughs> but it was it was just being around him was 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 pretty trippy. So, so that would be that would be one. He looked like the dog in his master's voice in that painting, the RCA logo one they do, where the dog's all like tilted head. Yeah. Wow. Like, wow. Hey, really, Matt? <laughs> reference from nineteen twelve. Bizarre <laughs> reference. He's like, I'm just pulling a gramophone label re- yes. reference. <laughs> <laughs> Matt is eighty six <laughs> years old, so don't worry. Who doesn't love a nice reference to Thomas Edison's dog? <laughs> um, I, think you, I think you have to throw Spielberg in there because the first time, um, the first time that he came to the set of Gremlins. I don't really think I've ever seen anything like this. Um, although I wonder if Joe Dante isn't referencing it in Gremlins 2. Remember in Gremlins 2 when Daniel Clamp shows up, John Glover shows up for the first time, and like a woman looks into the camera and she goes, he's here! <laughs> Everyone in the <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. You know? When Spielberg showed up on the set, people didn't think he was going to show because at the time he was working on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and he was in Sri Lanka Mm -hmm. for most of the shoot and was gone. And um, I actually, you know, one of the nice things was I would go to the Amblin office that was on the Warner Brothers lot and um, Spielberg had a huge collection of standard arcade games. Remember, it's 1983. So he had Pole Position and he had uh, Millipede. And he had a uh, food fight, oh, yeah. uh, which was a great one. I yeah. used to uh, finally. I would go. I would go over there when Gizmo would break, and Gizmo would break all the time. And I would I would spend three four hours in Spielberg's office, <laughs> and the secretary was oblivious. I went into Spielberg's office. I sat at his desk. I put my feet up on his desk. <laughs> I played with his rosebud sled. I rode the ET bicycle around. It was hilarious. Um, this may be yeah, the most. Eat. 80s sentences that have happened since the 80s. When Gizmo broke, I went to Steven Spielberg's office to play the arcade games. Ride E.T.'s bike. (laughs) And ride E.T.'s bike. bike. That's that's too good. The the first time that he, and and, and I'll I'll tell you about when um, I was playing pole position and Spielberg just showed up out of nowhere and decided to challenge me to pole position. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, um, so the first time we, we were shooting something, I don't remember what it was. And um, I literally heard someone say this. I was like outside, I think it was sitting on the steps of my trailer 
and I had my Walkman at the time, and I was I was really into this U2 album called War that had come out at the time, mm. and I kept listening to Sunday Bloody Sunday and New Year's Day over and over and over again because I was 19. I liked rock and roll. Mm. Yeah. And so I'm on my Walkman. I'm listening to that Synchronicity by the Police. So those are the two albums from that summer that was just everywhere. Oh yeah. And I see this woman. She's like making weird faces, like a surprise face. Like pull my head earphone plug out. You know what I mean? Slide it mm-hmm. off. And all I heard was her go like this. What? Oh my god. <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, what? And I'm like, and I said, oh my God, I said, oh my God, what? Because when you're 19, you'll just butt in on anybody's conversation. Right. And she goes, she goes, she looks at me and she goes, Spielberg's here. And I went, what? And I felt this wave of unbelievable panic. I don't know why. And I was guilty in kind of a Franz Kafka way of just doing everything wrong without having done anything wrong. And I thought, everybody start hustling like people just started tucking their shirts in and <laughs> a level of activity it was i'm not joking it was like the king was coming you know you see you see in old movies where they're like here comes the king you know and everybody started freaking out and i remember i went into um the, 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 after lunch, you have what's what are known as touch-ups, right? Because you get mm-hmm. you kind of neck, you make up a little bit, and your lip, whatever they lip gloss and stuff like that. And you need touch-ups to get your makeup freshened up for the shooting after lunch because of just the eating process. So I went in for touch-ups on my makeup, and I sat down. And the woman who was doing the makeup and hair, she started to put makeup on foundation back on my face, and her hands were shaking. <laughs> oh my god! She was wow. so nervous that he was coming. And I was like, now that is some power right there. Yeah. Like people just find out that you're coming and people are trembling. Wow. And people were trembling. And now the weird thing about it is, and I hope Mr. Spielberg, who's <laughs> such a great guy, is listening to this. <laughs> he, yes. he was completely unaffected by it. And I don't want to say he was oblivious to it because he's a super smart guy. But I think he saw it as an irritation. He's like, I think he was kind of like, if he could have said it, he would have said, "Guys, can you just just calm down? I'm, I'm not going to bite you. Let's just it's just a movie. Let's let's make it." <laughs> yeah, he was of not. Course. Of course, he was not about. He didn't want people to bow down to him. He wanted people to act normal and have fun and and make movies and relax. Because mm-hmm. he's actually a quite a down to earth person who's like a kind of a, you know, a movie geek, yeah. and um, you know, and and a, and a kind of a, a nerdy, you know, fun nerd, fun loving kind of nerdy guy. I don't know what he's like now. He was probably like to nerds what Bill Gates is now at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, he was that important and that revolutionary. Yeah. Oh. So, um, you know, he came over to me, and I, I honestly I don't remember much about it because I think I was speechless and trying not to look like an idiot, and. Um, and I was nervous too, and my heart was pounding too, just because everybody else's heart was pounding, even though I hadn't done anything. And it was just one of that whole thing. And uh, you know, he was he was super nice, and he was just really nice. And and I think I even had the guts to ask him a question, like how was Sri Lanka? And he was like, oh. And you know, I talked to him for maybe a minute, and then he went over and he talked to Joe Dante, and then he left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, that kind of broke the ice. And then maybe a week later, Gizmo broke for the ninety trillionth time. <laughs> went over to thing and I was playing pole position and this would be such a great shot in the movie I'm playing pole position 
And you know how, like, when you're when you have the big arcade screens, there's like a the kind of protective plexiglass yes. in front of the actual yeah. screen. Yeah. I see his face reflected in the plexiglass screen oh, as I'm thinking. God. God. <laughs> and I go, I think to myself, this looks like fucking Steven Spielberg standing right behind me. And we like do a slow turnaround like Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver and looks in the back seat of the sketchy I turn slowly around and I look and there he is and he's like, Wanna play? And I'm like, and he's saying, No. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Yeah. And I said, yeah, sure. So I did, I was like, we stopped the game, put it on two players, and he goes, you go first. I went first, and I had like, I was so pumped, and I'm a super competitive person. And I did this really, really great first section, and then I died on some chicane or something mm-hmm. like that. And then it was his turn. The guy gets on pole position and starts to play and plays and plays, gets to my thing, dips through it. Next thing you know, he's driving through places I've never seen. He's driving through cities. <laughs> and I'm this film, and it's like, I have like 15,000. He has like 392,000. <laughs> he decimated me. And it was great. So That's he's awesome. just good at everything. That's what we've learned. He somehow gets the Donkey Kong kill screen. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how is that even in this game? <laughs> so what is it? I'm just going to wrap this Spielberg thing up with an anecdote. It's very short, but it will cause the nerd orgasm that we've been building up to. Okay. Oh, the best. We had nerd foreplay for basically about 30 minutes that we need to release. I can't wait the movie goes. It's September 1983. Mm-hmm. I'm back in Manhattan. It's been a month, maybe six weeks since we finished the movie. And I'm sitting on my couch and I'm bored. After doing Gremlins, everything seems boring. Yeah. Right. Literally, just like you go from like the greatest adrenaline rush of all time to just nothing. <laughs> and then suddenly I hear, and I go, that's weird. That's my back door, which is the freight elevator. What the, what the, f- and I go and open the back door to my apartment where the freight elevator is. And there's this guy with an enormous box. And he goes, are you Zach Galligan? And I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, hey, you sign here, please. <laughs> and so I sign the thing and gives me the box. And he has to bring it in on one of those kind of like, it's not a forklift, but it's like the kind of thing where you, you put it on the thing and you wheel it in. Yeah. yeah. And he wheeled it into my kitchen and I opened the box. And inside was a card that said, now you don't have to come to my office to play this anymore. And it was actually not the pole position game, but the game that I played all the time, Millipede. He sent me this Millipede machine. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. Across country. Wow. Oh <laughs> what an amazing <laughs> gift. That is Steven so awesome. Shipped me his Millipede machine. I just oh. want every member listening to this to fully digest that. Mm-hmm. And to come when they feel like it. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I'm spent. Yes. Uh, what what happened to it? Do you still have it? or? So here's what happened to it. you got to realize, I got it in 1983. The internet is 15, 14, 15 years away. Right. Okay. So if you play these arcade games long enough, the tube that illuminates it goes out eventually. Yeah, of course, sure. Yeah. In 1991, the tube went out, everyone got bored playing it, 
Nobody thought that it had any intrinsic value or knew how to fix it or what to do with it. Oh, no. So we had to pick it up and junk it. Oh, ah, oh. crap. <laughs> Man. And of course, you know, six years later, you had uh, eBay and everyone's yeah. looking around going, what do you think we could have gotten for that? 50 grand? <laughs> From Spielberg's yeah. office? Yeah, yeah. I think. Oh, yeah. Man, that is extraordinary. Oh, my God. Oh, man. What, a, what an amazing thing, man. That is wow. amazing. It's really, it's really incredible. Uh, look, I mean, your your career is so cool, and there's so many more things I want to talk about. I know we like, but there's one thing that you mentioned before, because uh, we have to wrap up shortly. But there's one yeah. thing that you mentioned, but as we were literally setting up the show today, like just you having small talk, and you were like, you you dropped some information uh, about Leah uh, Thompson, about Leah Thompson. And uh, yeah, so I thought if if you wouldn't mind uh, uh, chatting about that, that that really would be awesome. Well, the only thing I was going to say was that I always kind of felt during the '80s that Leah Thompson was kind of for me the, the girl that got away. Mm-hmm. I think I may even have told her this when I saw her. I saw her at a convention a couple of years ago in in, uh, in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and um, and and I'm not uh, if she if she hears this, I don't want her to really take it all that seriously. But <laughs> at the time, I just thought that she was so beautiful and really talented and so sweet. She seemed very unaffected and yeah. not snobby or stuck up in any way. Totally. And it was weird how close I came to working with her so many times. I mean, I read uh, and screen tested for Back to the Future. I, I, I read five or six times for Space Cube. Mm-hmm. I read five or six times for some kind of wonderful and got right down to the wire for the part that Craig Sheffer did. Um, oh, and I always felt that she and I would have been just great together on screen. I, I just thought that uh, we would have had really good chemistry. Yeah. And when I did finally meet her, she was exactly what I thought she was going to be. And I just kind of thought that she was, um, I, she was always one of my, you know, favorites, one of my ideal women from the eighties. And, and mm-hmm. it was always frustrating to me that I came so close <laughs> to like, working with her and meeting her and never actually did it. Oh, yep. Red Dawn was another one. Came close to Red Dawn too. So there were yep. like four or five movies you know, where I, she would have been my girlfriend, and, and they just never happened. <laughs> She's she was has been one of those people like like you, where uh, having having you on the show, and then you want to talk about you know you want to talk about like the movies and the things that are you know um really geeky and really nerdy about why we love these films why we love this time period really and uh it was the same kind of situation where she she, i mean she spent 20 minutes talking about howard the duck and we were like yeah "Uh, you know there's never i've never heard someone talk about howard the duck (laughs) with that much love and that much stuff i mean we we learned in that interview yeah. that uh, Robin Williams came to the set and offered to voice Jay Howard Leno the Duck. Could have been the Jay duck. Leno offered <laughs> to voice Howard the Duck and write <laughs> jokes for it, and yeah. they were just they just kept yeah. turning them down, like left and yeah. right, which is amazing. That was the fatal flaw. I mean, imagine Aladdin if it had just been done by like you know, a, a normal voiceover guy. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, do you are, do you have social media? Do you have a, a place that people can uh, find you? I do. I have. Um, I'm. I have. I really don't do Facebook that much, but I do Instagram a lot. So okay. um, both my Instagram and Twitter uh, handles are the same, 
and they're kind of quirky, but my initials are ZWG. Uh, my name is Zachary Wolf Galligan. Mm-hmm. I almost went by Wolf instead of Zach Galligan. Um, and Zach so Wolf. My, That's Zach, a cool I, ass I name. Like, <laughs> I liked Zach Wolf because it was like, at the time, it was like Rob Lowe, you know, uh, yeah. Tom Cruise. Yeah, two syllables. Sean yep. it, was, it was like two syllables, bing, bang. You know, yeah. Zach Wolf, same thing. You'd have played a lot um, of biker gang. <laughs> guys <laughs> zach wolf <laughs> definitely runs with the hell's angels or something you know? um so my handle is zwg man man um and so it's my initials and the word uh man and i'm um i am on uh inst- i'm verified on twitter and instagram so it's very easy to locate Great. Well, look, uh, for the future, Zach, if you would ever consider this, when we get back to the world where we're allowed to have guests live on stage, you know, for uh, whether for, you know, Comic-Con or for WonderCon or for, you know, any anything, I w- we would love to do something like this live and be able to open it up to questions if, if uh, you know, from uh, from an audience and things like that. If you're ever down to do it, we would love to have you. 100 percent. Not even a question. Great. Cool. That'd be great, man. That'd be great. Mike Black, where can people find you? At Mike Black Attack on all social media. And you have plenty of Gremlins action figures. And, yes, I do. And, yes. From NECA, I believe. You can see them and all. And I'll be getting a new one eventually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you bet. You can see them all on Mike Black's Instagram. You bet. Yep, you bet. I believe uh, Mike Black just recently purchased uh, the brand new Snake Mountain. Um, I did. It's a pretty big deal. Exciting. It's very <laughs> exciting. Pictures. How tall and how big? Uh, very. I don't know. It's like if you were laying down. <laughs> if I was laying down. Yeah. Enormous. Then. If you were laying down and had like a, a vestibule <laughs> on top of me. Yeah. All right. Uh, Matt Walker, where can people find you? Uh, there are links to everything at funnymat.com or if you're upset by anything I said, please let me know at mattwalkersucks.com. Uh, Matt Walker has also uh, designed some uh, terrific terrific uh, merchandise that you can pick yep. up over at threadless.com. Oh, wait, no, is that the, the nighttime show.threadless.com, right? Yes. The nighttime show. Our, our, threadless.com. our show merch there. We've got lots of good stuff. Art by Mario Delgado does our posters. And then also well, I made a bunch of Star Trek related things. That, absolutely. Yeah. We didn't even get to talk about the Star Trek connection here with Zach, uh, yeah. who uh, was, who did, did show up in a Star Trek Yes. episode i believe voyager yes is that right that's correct yes see so we may need to get him one of these shirts i didn't even get i didn't even get to bring start i didn't oh, I know. well you know uh well i brought it up Next for time. you yes. uh you can always get me at steven glickman s-t-e-p-h-e-n glickman on twitter instagram youtube tiktok and all the other places there are uh zach galligan you son of a bitch you're the fucking <laughs> coolest thank you so much for doing this man it's absolutely been my pleasure and uh Happy to come on anytime you guys want. You bet. Thanks, buddy. Talk real soon. Bye. Bye.